Welcome to another edition of the Bristol Film Critics Circle podcast. This week we're going to be talking about Christmas movies and your hosts for this week are myself, Tara Judah. And me, Peter Walsh. So we're going to talk about Christmas films and one of the reasons we're going to talk about this is because Christmas movies are fantastically enjoyable and it's seasonally appropriate, but also because they have values and ideology happening in the films that I think that there's there's something to be drawn out of that. Um, why we have certain favourites that we come back to every year, why some Christmas films are less successful and less loved than others. Yeah, and it's it's a tradition that people like to uphold. There are films they want to see every year in a certain circumstance with their families or their friends that they like to get together. And maybe there is an ideology they wish to see reflected in their own lives, perhaps, or that it maybe helps anchor some kind of traditional meaning in their lives. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to start with that idea of ritual and tradition because they are the kinds of films that people do take out the same films. They do watch the same yeah. films year in, year out. And one of the films that probably is the, the sort of biggest, most iconic for that is It's a Wonderful Life, yeah, which is traditionally a film that people would watch on Christmas Eve. Um, this is partially because it adheres to that Christmas miracle yeah. kind of narrative, but also because this film is, you know, incredibly socially aware this is this is about a, it's a very serious topic it's about a man who's suicidal yeah. and completely depressed yeah. on the on the brink of christmas due to financial ruin and i think that you know that that the relevance of this topic never goes away every year we see you know continual kind of situations yeah, that, that come up that we think well you know we can see how someone could feel that down about their life due to the sort of social circumstance they're put in. And what we hopefully or in theory get from this film is that you realise that there is something more important yeah. than your social standing and your kind of, I guess, financial situation yeah. in that you bring something to the lives of the people around you. Well, it's Christmas is a time of reflection to look back on the year that's gone, you know, preceding New Year's in some way to look back. makes you reflect on where you are in your life, what's going on in your life, where you want to be in your life. And to say that like the most Christmassy of films ever is a film about a man who's suicidal might seem absurd and ridiculous, but as you say, it's a moment of looking back and realising what your place in the world is. And also being grateful for the things that you do have. And I mean, you know, that's a very Americanized also yeah. I think tradition in Christmas films, but to be grateful for what you do have even when your circumstances aren't particularly great. Um you know, the, the other one of the other favourite Christmas movies for me is um, Billy Wilder's The Apartment. And again, that's a really depressing Christmas yeah. film, which is, you know, uh, sort of about the disposability of women in, in, in a kind well, of very male-centric world and the yeah, way in which it's, it's, women are treated so badly. And again, it's suicide is one of the major yeah. themes. Um, and, and looking for something or someone, either people or situations in your life that can make you kind of come back from that feeling. Yeah are really central ideas in both of these films. But it's, it's also about being young and a career-minded person working in the, the, the isolation of living in a big metropolis. Being young at a certain age, you haven't got family around you, you haven't got any traditions, you haven't got any rituals, but Christmas is still happening. It's a very interesting thing that Christmas is happening in the background, and there is a story. It is a Christmas film, but it's not a Christmas film. This is the sort of weird duality with these films, right? That is about life happening at key moments, how that is reflected at Christmas time and Christmas time being a time when we can all reflect on those stories. Yeah, I think it's worth saying that, you know, for Chris, for a film to be a Christmas film, Christmas doesn't have to be the centre of the narrative no. in the way that it is with films like uh, Elf or Santa, the Santa Claus yeah, or, you know, a, the way or... a lot of those movies where it's sort of like, 
you know, the narrative centers around the idea of Christmas Day, Christmas with the Cranks and the Family Stone. But some of these Christmas films are movies where Christmas is an event that is in the background, but it hangs there as a very important background. It's not incidental that it's Christmas because that time of year brings up certain things. I mean, you know, we trace this back to literature. I mean, it's a very Dickensian, you know, you know, the Christmas Carol is something that is really heavily centered in, I think, our collective public memory. And I think that we we do think of Christmas as a time when perhaps you, what you should be doing or what you should be learning is that you, you know, you should be, it's about giving and it's hopefully about having a more socialist understanding of, of like the society you live in and being kinder yeah. to other people. And I think that's why a lot of those kind of American movies do have those depressing yeah. themes like um, suicide at the center, because those are the sorts of things that remind us like how difficult it is at this time of year for a lot of people and that it's not just about celebrating and having a nice time no but it's it is as you say a very tough time of year that there's it's dark it's cold you live isolated and it's tough i mean it's it's not by chance that if you watch tv over christmas that there's a telephone number to the samaritans popping up in the middle of your films reminding you that if you are lonely you can call and talk to someone and there's perhaps a cruel irony in seeing a film like the apartment where that message is scrolling along the bottom as you're watching it. There's there's something incredibly poignant about that, but there's a very weird and interesting real world resonance to the film as you're watching it on TV. That it's you know, you're watching a very depressing film, but there are a lot of very depressed people in the world at this moment. Because it is Christmas. The other the other narrative that I think we see a lot of in these films and and, and a, a staunch favourite of mine is Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street is this sort of this idea of belief. Um, and the sort of strength of belief. And obviously this comes from the very kind of Christian beginnings yeah. of what Christmas is actually about for a lot of people, which yeah. is religion. But um, even though we see that narrative kind of changed and, you know, it's changed over time to become this Christmas miracle narrative and that can mean a lot of things. What I think is really interesting about Miracle on 34th Street is that what we see in Santa Claus being on trial, you know, yes. so it's sort of like it's not actually the trial of Santa Claus. This is the trial of people's faith and their belief in something. Um, and also that their ability to believe that somebody who has a sense of cheer and giving about them isn't just a crazy homeless person. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really interesting that that's what's kind of used in this film is that he's sort of depicted as if he's sort of like a, you know, mentally ill and, and, yeah, and you know, direct, like, deluded. yeah, completely deluded and not quite right. Whereas it's like actually what he is, you know, whether or not he is Santa Claus is kind of irrelevant. Is he is someone who has a belief in and a faith in humanity. Yeah, but it's, it's very interesting how you bring up the question of belief, how fundamentally most Christmas films have nothing to do with Christian beliefs, Christian systems. Not in a direct way anymore, but I think that you can see a, a trajectory of it still existing. Because okay. I think that that Christmas miracle movie or that idea that kind of everything, like, we'll all be home for Christmas or we'll all be saved for Christmas. Even in films like, you know, Christmas with the Cranks, where it's like the, the, the film rests on whether or not the daughter's going to come home for Christmas and they will celebrate. That still comes from the idea of having Christmas spirit and this sense of Christmas spirit and this belief mm. or faith in sure. something something elusive that you can't quite touch. Now, yeah. I know that it's quite... It's, I think quite it's come, from a Christian, it is, it's come a, long, a, Christian tradition. a long way from the beginning, but I think you can see the trajectory. I think okay. it's quite clear. Um, you know, just because those films take on those different aspects, we still see it. Some films have that kind of idea of, you know, 
consumerism as the sort of negative at, yeah. at the heart and it's like oh christmas has become you know just a, a very heavily heavily commercial holiday it's all about consumerism and buying things hmm. and that's what the kind of negativity at the center yeah. of the film that you have to find the christmas spirit as the positive like miracle at the end again i think that that narrative is just another way of bringing out that essential idea well, from the beginning of christmas is about you know a celebration of faith and belief in something spirit yeah. and also about the idea well, of giving well isn't that the interesting thing with these narratives like um it's a wonderful life and the apartment being ultimately positions where people are having a crisis of faith on some level that they're having a crisis of faith or direction or purpose in their own life where they're going what the point of it all is um i mean could you even stretch it to transformational stories like a christmas carol like scrooge like Trading places. I don't know. Maybe not trading places, but films where they start out as one person who's unhappy and unbalanced and unjust, but they realise their place and their belonging. And that there's a belief in something greater than themselves. Absolutely. I think all. I think all of the kind of you know populist mainstream successful Christmas movies. It's important to say that because yeah. we will get onto the other ones in just a minute. <laughs> that they do follow a very clear three-act narrative arc, and yeah. that there is always some kind of character arc where there's a realization um, and a resolution that's very sure. important in these films we, we we don't see the endurance of these films where that is absent i think the mm, films okay. that that do something different and don't have that sure. are the ones that we tend to forget about and they're the less successful ones sometimes they're the they're the ridiculous kind of cult ones that maybe we find entertaining for other reasons sure okay but they're not the sort of staunch narrative Cla cast iron classics christmas yeah Year the, the in, thing, year the thing out. That will be on ITV this Christmas. Right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they're, they're not kind of guaranteed, like you know, money winners year in, no, year but, out. But the, but that's the interesting thing that the, then these cult oddities are what we take on as our own traditions. That there are films that like I like. I haven't got the examples, but I know films like sit down and watch a given film because it's ridiculously absurd because it's their tradition, and they're the traditions we find out of it. But that's again something different and separate, I suppose. Well, no, I, I mean, I think that, you know, those, those the, the, the idea of tradition and ritual is incredibly important at this time of year. And I think that there is something um, that kind of comes back in that. There's, there's this sort of crossover films where you have things like Gremlins, where mm. they're kind of almost in that cult sphere, except for that they do adhere to the same kind of yeah, structure as yes, those other course. films, which is why they're the more successful ones out of those yeah, cult films and why... They're, yeah, they're sort of in that grey liminal area between the two. <laughs> yes. And then you get the films that are really, I mean, you know, even sort of like Black Christmas is a, a, you know, a very good horror film that has that idea of, of something that you, it's still got a classic narrative where you want the resolution. It, yeah. it propels forward in a very classical way. What What's very different to that is films like Elves or, you know, okay. Santa with Muscles or, um, <laughs> I know, these, these sorts of like cultish films where, I mean, Elves is probably one of the most extreme examples, one of the most ridiculous examples. Okay. Um, these... Well, tell us a bit about it. I, um, I, don't, I know of it, but I don't know it. So, there's this, this, it's really a ridiculous premise. Is it, is it a bad horror film? Or what is it, it is a bad horror film. Is it so, a bad film? Uh, yeah, well, a I young mean, woman who lives in a family where, with her mother and her grandfather, and it's a horrible situation. Her mother, her mother and her don't get along. Um, she just goes and hangs out with her friends, and her grandfather's a horrible old man, and there's domestic <laughs> violence, and it's a really terrible situation at home. But, but what they're all protecting her from is these sort of crazy 
elf Nazis that were okay, created yes. during the Second World War who want to impregnate her to create a super race. Um, the, As you, know, you do. The, this kind of narrative, and particularly the way the narrative plays out as well, because and this is a spoiler alert, but there, there is no narrative resolution. It sort of ends with you with her kind of having like an elf baby, I kind guess. Kind of? How, how do you ambiguously well, have an elf baby? I mean, I don't know. I guess I need to see the film to find need, out. But, yeah. Exactly, right. It shouldn't so be so binary and not or not having a child, but maybe that's breaking some interesting dichotomy. What do I know? It's not a particularly interesting <laughs> okay, film. Well, it doesn't play out. In, I mean, you know, it's also a bad film, and it's, it's worth putting, yeah, well, I was putting that say, in. I'm pretty sure the Bristol Bad Film Club showed it last Christmas. Yeah, I believe <laughs> it's, so. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's an officially certified bad film. It is, it is. And you can see why someone might watch it with that kind of group mentality in a setting where you're enjoying and laughing at the film for all of its, you yeah. know, kind of narrative uh, failures and its ridiculous plot points and yeah. also you know it's it's kind of horrendous treatment of women and that's one of the things in a lot of these cult films that people enjoy watching in group scenarios however yeah. it's not a good film there's no way to enjoy this on a single viewing on your own it doesn't yeah. have any kind of you know longevity or redeeming qualities or long-standing because it doesn't have what would make it in any way a good film or even an intriguing film no and i think that you know these these kind of cult films, the reason that we, we still are aware of them is because they occupy this kind of this, this space in relation to what's happening in the mainstream. And well, it's, it's, isn't, isn't the ultimate thing with so many cult films that you find these films as a relief to the wash of mainstream hegemony that's out there, the usual standard Christmas fare that, you know, you're going to be seeing that with your parents when you go back at Christmas. That's what's going to be on TV. That's what everyone can agree on. But... If you're having a blowout the week before Christmas, you want to see something absurd and ridiculous with your friends and something that you can sit down and laugh at. Not, you're not going to get your friends together and necessarily watch It's a Wonderful Life, but you might do that with your family, more so. I don't know. Depends. I don't know what kind of friends you have. Wow. <laughs> I'd be watching It's a Wonderful Life. With your friends every year? Okay, well. Oh, but, that's, but you know the story of how that became a Christmas tradition is quite fascinating as well. It was shown... Um, it was fell out of copyright so US TV channels just showed it every Christmas just because they could show it for very very cheap and they showed it year in year out and audiences started tuning in and it became a tradition I mean it was critically mauled when it was first released it was critically overlooked and then eventually it found its audience on American network television as year in year out families came around it, and they obviously recognized the, the quality of the film that critics initially did not and therefore inveigled its way into family or familiar traditions and this is a tradition which the anglophone world which is say australia on one part the uk on the other has taken across that it's found this fame in the states and this rediscovery of sorts in the 60s and 70s and that that's come across to us and that's quite interesting in many ways it has become a traditional christmas film in this country i don't want to say it's been imported from the states but on some level it has well, I think it's also, I mean, that's an, another point that's worth picking up on is how you kind of come to these films as traditions. And, yeah. you know, um, television obviously is one of those ways, some like yeah. some kind of broadcaster or curating service that repeatedly plays exactly. something. Exactly, there's, there's that regularity. Gives it the exposure, because for me, It's a Wonderful Life has always been a Christmas Eve movie film, because since I was a small child, it was played every single Christmas Eve at the biggest cinema, repertory in cinema, okay. in the you know in the whole country, yeah. every single Christmas Eve, I in was, a double bill with shop around the corner. So that's was, a, a kind of Christmas double bill as well for me. I would say that the, the, the repertory tradition of it in this country has only just started to take root 
quite possibly in the last 10 years. Yeah, I think um, the first time I noticed that uh, they had a small repertory strain at the BFI was yeah. kind of about mid 2000s. Okay. Um, and they were playing the apartment uh, regularly. Yeah. Just prior to Christmas as a kind of pre Christmas movie. Um, I think in a conservative kind of effort, they'd sort of put it in one of their smaller cinemas as well, yeah. unsure if it would work. Yeah, no, but I, I know the art house cinemas, the Watershed, the showroom in Sheffield, they took it in. There was a, I think there was a new BCP that came out maybe five years ago much fanfare and a lot of UK cinemas picked that up and showed that regular Christmas and they got good audiences. That's how I saw it for the first time. Mm. I knew it as the traditional thing and I saw it in an art house cinema for the first time, which is kind of absurd because it's not an art house film in any way. No, although, I mean, I think that that's a, I mean, we're moving on to a slightly different top right now, but it's worth yeah. mentioning that, you know, what what was once kind of, like repertory has become art house. Yes. Just in the sense that repertory has become marginalised. So, I mean, I agree, those sorts of films are not necessarily art house films, but they become art house films because of their repertory aspect. Though, interestingly, a few multiplexes are trying to eat into that. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the big, high-minded art house uh, multiplexes in Bristol. Maybe possibly showing It's Wonderful Life. That wouldn't surprise me at all. No, well, it would make sense. I mean, you know, I'm going to kind of tangent here, but... That's what's happened in Australia, and it yeah. feel like you know. I mean, England surprisingly only really in in terms of rep content is really behind Australia's sort of uh, you know repertory culture. Sure. It, it's not very strong here. People sort of come out to see those films, but they don't come out you in, know on in, mass in, in, yeah. in large quantities. They do for outdoor screenings, but they haven't quite got the handle of it in cinemas yet. Yeah. But what happened, and what will probably happen here, and what will cultivate that rep culture yeah. is when the multiplexes take it on, yeah. because it is. You know, certainly the case in Australia that you would see all of these films in the multiplex as well as the art house cinemas over Christmas. You would regularly see films like, not every single rep film, but, you know, Taxi Driver, like the big ones when they come out, they will also play the multiplex. You will see Casablanca regularly in a multiplex. So I think that that kind of like culture is probably not too far from kind of coming into being here. Largely as well, because there are just more multiplexes than art houses in this country. Yeah. Lots of areas yeah, yeah. are not serviced at all no, by no, the art house cinemas. And it's increasingly becoming important that there is some kind of provision in those areas for alternative content that isn't and yeah, you know new or mainstream. And we'll exactly and we will see we will see that with, you know, National Theatre Live as well and all of those other yeah. kind of opera screenings and everything else. It That's, won't be yeah, long until the multiplex is not going to lag behind the rest no. of the industry and yeah, only yeah. show mainstream content. No, no, no. They will diversified repertoires. As it were. Also, they, I mean, you know, they may be subject to VPF agreements, but they also have more screens than anyone else. So they, yeah, still, they, they do have some capability they, yeah, for doing it. Especially the big ones. Right? They, they Like the big ones in Bristol, they really have a lot of room to play around with. Absolutely. But it's interesting, perhaps, if you look at repertory in the sense of, to fall back on how uh, It's a Wonderful Life became a repertory film on American TV screens. And I talk about the traditions of films that are shown in different countries. It's very, very, very cultural. In different countries, this, the example of pulling it over to my side of it is: I feel compelled to mention um, there are two things in Sweden. There's Karl Bertilsson's Du Lafton or uh, Christopher's Christmas Mission. It's a 20-minute film uh, that's shown every Christmas about a post office clerk um, just doing a job role, like a temping role. He decides to steal lots of very expensive presents from the rich people who he discerns from the Swedish tax register, and then he relabels them and gives them to the working poor, and 
his father find, eventually finds out, is absolutely furious. They go around to apologise to all the bourgeoisie, and they just say, oh, no, I didn't want that disgusting plate from my auntie. It's much better that you gave it to someone who really valued it. And it's this hilarious, practically communist tale, but it's shown every Christmas in Sweden, and people really sit down and watch it, almost irrespective of political stripe. Okay, people on the far right really don't talk in fond terms about it, but everyone else kind of appreciates it and comes around at Christmas and watches it. It's a, it's a little animated film made by one of Sweden's biggest comedians. It's it's lovely and it's been running since the 70s, I think, and it's great. You also have every Christmas Eve in the afternoon, they show a set program of um, Disney animation. And that's been a tradition that's been running since my mother's was a child. And it, back then it was a big deal because it was the only time they'd showed animated films on TV all year. Now, that isn't quite the case in Sweden anymore, but it's definitely something that the family gathers around. It's a Christmas tradition. I don't know if there are any Christmas values in it. Quite controversially, there's um, what is effectively, in one of the Disney animations, a gollywog real pick-in-any figure that's really quite controversial. And in recent years, they cut that out. And that was a huge issue in Sweden. that they well, were seen I'm glad as, they did. Well, a lot of people are very glad that they did. But the problem is that they're seen as tampering with this sacrosanct, holy Christmas tradition, which is obviously, you know, like, you try telling someone they can't have turkey for Christmas, there'd be an uproar. And people were absolutely furious about this. But on some levels, this is the tradition and values that are being transposed on a whole national audience year in, year out. So, yes, it is fitting to cut it out. But then again, that plays into the hands of those who cry out political correctness. It's, it's really interesting, really problematic. It, but it's, you know, what are the values that the Christmas traditions impose? Well, I think, you know, this is a, an intensely interesting area and a subject really for a podcast oh, all of its quite, own. Yes, but, indeed. But the, the, this sort of idea of kind of, you know, changing the canon. And, and I guess we, we, we've seen mm. this for in the last couple of years very much in literature with, yeah. with the, the changing of, of, of the terms in, you know, um, the Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer yeah. um, tales. Like they, they have gone back and changed certain things. Now, yeah. Or yeah. indeed in Agatha Christie's. Uh, Nugger Boys is also known as I, I forget what it's called in this new title, but they changed the title to Dunder and None. You know, I forget that was basically they changed the title of the Agatha Christie novel because it was quite racially insensitive. Yeah, and I think that uh, on the one hand, obviously, there is a case to be made for the fact that you know we have to understand the kind of historical context where things came from, and the fact that it is a racist text, and yes. we should actually study it in that context. I don't yeah, think we should not apologise for us. Well, not take away the fact that it's racist, because yeah. I think you know there's something important about viewing something today as being aware that yeah. there was racism in the past. You don't want to erase the racism because that also is a dangerous way of kind of whitewashing the history. Sure, but can you, however, can you give a ten-year-old the critical tools to? In well, a I deconstructed think, way, read Huckleberry Finn and understand or appreciate the nuance well, of racial readings in it. Like, I mean, that's why the, my argument would be that you know these things should just be re removed in some context from those okay. sorts of curriculums and kind of you know sort of change. It's like yeah. it's like the concept of showing people birth of a nation, oh, which well. is just insensing. You know, I mean, it's like we don't need to see the jazz singer. We don't need to see. Tara, birth in of a, a podcast about Christmas movies, do we really have to bring up birth <laughs> of a nation? That's just like a bridge too far, surely. All right, we'll put that one on hold for another time. But I think, you yes, know, the, the, the point's still standing. Yeah, the point still standing is that perhaps what these things indicate is that, one, we should be aware that they're part of the history. We should never yep. cover up a history. And we should, you know, certainly if it's going to be a cover up that is detrimental <laughs> to the, the very people that it's offensive to. Um, but secondly, that That's also conspiracies perhaps, begin, perhaps it's time for us to start making better, like less horrible stories that are less sexist, less homophobic, less racist. You know, well, perhaps that's, that's a time and on, a call on, for better stories. On that note, perhaps we should consider, uh, as we get to a point where we probably have to wrap up soon, 
what Christmas films can you think of that have come in recent years that should become part of the canon, should be traditional, should find a place in the rep? Well, I would say very few, possibly none. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, I think some have, uh, certainly in the last decade. Unfortunately, why do you say that? Well, Elf is part of this traditional canon. I think that Love Actually, unfortunately, is sticking around. I mean, no one should be watching Richard Curtis values at Christmas, but they are. The holiday with Cameron Diaz and and Kate Winslet. Really, is the holiday sneaking in there? Absolutely, it is. You know, these are, well, I work in a a video rental business, and those are the top renters at this time of year. You know, these, they're equally on par with uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone. And, Gosh, you know, the, did you the, really put them up there? Wow. Well, well that we rent them as oh, much, wow. or if not more. Sure. I would say that, you know, we've had to buy in more copies of Love Actually oh. than any other Christmas movie. That's a, that's a depressing thought. Well, obviously the Scandinavians have to come to a rescue here. And we have to make, well, I have to make a wonderful mention of the brilliant film Rare Exports from uh, 2010. A Finnish sort of horror film that's sort of about the... Well, what can I say? It's about Santa Claus and the horrific gothic heart of the Santa Claus tale. I think it's brilliant. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. If people are looking for a Christmassy film, it's quite funny, a bit, a bit opaque, a bit, a bit dark, a bit sinister. It, it offers a lot on a lot of levels. Um, I'd agree completely. The other one for me would be Bad Santa. I actually really like that film. Yes, Bad Santa's good. Billy Bob Thornton. I think that, you know, not only is it funny, and it and it is decidedly funny, but also <laughs> I think that, you know, it it does play with those those sorts of, turn those kind of ideas on their heads sometimes, those mainstream values, and sort of question them and why we're so invested in them. And like all good American movies, it's very anti-all American values. Yeah. and and delightfully for a Christmas film that you can sit down and watch it bluer than the sea itself, which is really something quite cathartic and relieving to see if you've been out Christmas shopping all day, is to see someone just absolutely letting wild in a Christmas consumerist scenario. And it is quite anti-consumerist on some level as well, I suppose. It's great, yeah, no. But there, there are two Christmas films that, well, I'll be looking forward to seeing at the watershed in 20 years' time <laughs> as part of the new Christmas repertory. Alongside It's a Wonderful Life and um, and The Apartment and The Apartment and uh, Love Actually, maybe. Who knows? No, let's hope not. <laughs> All right. That's us out of time here at Bristol Film Critics Circle uh, podcast, but there will be another one next week from some other members of our group. We are rotating on this podcast. Indeed. Uh, if you want to get uh, involved with any of our conversation, please do look us up on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you can also send us an email via our website. Just look for Bristol Film Critics Circle. Um, We'd be happy to hear from you and to get in touch. Thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to Tara Judah. And Peter Walsh. Goodbye.